I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more. Tegan, I just want to confirm for our listeners, this is not a tech podcast. Would you agree? I would agree. Okay. With that confirmed, holy cow. I just want to know, how many Apple Vision Pros do you plan to buy next year when it's released? I think I'll buy at least one because you can only wear one at a time, Chris, but I'm hoping that you will as well and that we'll be able to podcast, you know, in some other world. Was that not incredible? The demo? Amazing. What do you think? People who are saying, why would I want to use it? There's no use cases. We don't need that right now. Number one use case for me is I'd like to have a permanent seat behind home plate at Fenway Park to watch my beloved Boston Red Sox play every night. That's what I want to do. Now, for people who may not have read the 75 articles on the Apple Vision Pro that you read or the 55 articles that I read, you're referring, of course, to special cameras that Apple has built. Of course, they've just built, I think, a couple of them or who knows even how many. It's not in full production yet, but these are cameras built by Apple for the Apple Vision Pro or to be able to be seen in that technology that puts you in the front row at a baseball game, at an NBA game. And apparently, according to the folks that you and I have read and heard, that functionality was incredible. Now, that's not available, though, on day one. But in our conversations, you believe that that's the killer app. I think so. I mean, what it is, is it's a glimpse into the future. You know, when we first saw the iPhone, it was apparent to me immediately that this was changing everything. And while it's harder to say that with Apple Vision Pro, it does kind of show you what can be done. And you and me podcasting using it is only the start, Chris. So yeah. anyway, I look forward to us both getting them early next year. Excellent. Happy birthday to me. That's what you're getting me? That is, that's yeah, awesome. You will, you will save. It might have to come down a little bit in price before, uh, before I get you one for your birthday, Chris. Okay. Well, you know, we, we, we have it on tape here. It's a shame for you to walk that back so quickly, but let's get on with business. House Republicans, the Washington Post reported on Wednesday that a two-day stalemate between hard-right Republicans and GOP leaders has effectively frozen the House from considering any legislation for the foreseeable future as both groups failed to find a resolution to the standoff that would allow the majority to vote on bills. Just past 6 p.m. on Wednesday, after GOP leaders gave up on resolving the impasse this week and canceled the remaining votes for the week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy addressed reporters and explained that part of the ongoing frustration is the hardline faction's inability to articulate their demands. This is the difficult thing, he said. Some of these members, they don't know what to ask for. So let's begin there because I think it's a really interesting framing by McCarthy. Do the hardliners know what to ask for? Are they asking for anything that McCarthy can actually deliver? And if not, do they have leverage on the other side? Can the hardliners actually replace McCarthy? I mean, do they have the votes for an alternative? So is he asking the right question? I think he is, Chris. And I think that if you go back to last week's episode of Trial Balloon, I mean, we talked about this. That deal was a bipartisan deal. The debt deal. The debt deal, exactly. They got Democrats and Republicans to vote for it in large numbers in the House. But what we said at that time was that Kevin McCarthy got a little weaker and that Joe Biden got a little stronger in those negotiations. The other thing that we said is that the more deals that Kevin McCarthy is forced to cut with Democrats, 
the weaker he becomes. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's what's happened. And the reverse is true as well. The more deals McCarthy is forced to cut with his Republican hardliners, the weaker he becomes as well. He's being squeezed from both sides. And as of now, the House is literally paralyzed. They can't bring anything to the floor right now. But what is the hardliners leverage? As I was thinking about this and read your piece from Wednesday, here's the end of the piece that you wrote. You just referenced a little bit of what you wrote there. But at the end, you said, but none of that changes the reality that House Republicans are at war with each other. Conservatives who made McCarthy pay a high price to become speaker back in January now want even more changes in how the House is run. Specifically, they want to write spending bills lower than the caps provided by the debt limit deal. McCarthy has so far refused to give in to these demands, but if he wants to keep his job, he probably has no choice. My question is, what's the hardliners leverage? Is there someone else they can replace McCarthy with? And that's why I think he asked this question or made this statement. This is the difficult thing, he said. Some of these members, they don't know what to ask for. So they're asking for something that he's saying he can't give, or he so far has refused to give into these demands to write spending bills lower than the caps provided by the debt limit deal. And I take him to be saying, they're asking for something that I'm not going to give in on. And yet I know they don't have the leverage because they can't actually replace me because they don't have the votes to put someone else in. But what they can do is they can Uh grind the House to a halt because Democrats aren't going to do what they did last week with the debt ceiling bill. They're not going to bail McCarthy out on a rule vote. Instead, the Democrats are going to sit on the sidelines and they're going to let McCarthy try to get the votes and he doesn't have the votes. So I think for a lot of these hardliners, the House doing nothing is the second best option. I agree. That's the next path that they have and that they did is shut it down. Is that helpful to the hardliners, though? They're having to walk a very fine line to use leverage to get as much as they can from McCarthy, but not so much leverage that he simply can't give in. And the hardliners look very bad, and they're just folks who want to shut down government. Now, you just said a second ago that they're probably perfectly fine with that. I wouldn't want to take the other side of that argument because they probably are on some level not dissatisfied with that. But at the same time, I think I was reading some analysis and and even was it Matt Gates may have said something that at some point they kind of can't keep doing it. At some point that backfires against them, I believe. Do you agree with that? Is that, you know, or no, is that no, that's the leverage is just shut it down and just shut it down? I think they're bomb throwers. You know, they don't negotiate. They don't compromise. That's their position. And so what they do is they stage the circus. They show their power by doing what they're doing now. They paralyze the House. And does at some point that hurt McCarthy? Or on some level, does McCarthy shrug and is like, look, America, this is what we got. These people are in the Republican Party, but this is what we got. Not much for me to do here. Here's why McCarthy can't do that, because he is the successor as Speaker from Nancy Pelosi. Now, Nancy Pelosi had the same majority, the same five-seat majority in the House of Representatives, and she never had this problem. She never had a problem bringing a rule to the floor for a vote. People like to talk about, and I believe it's false equivalency, but they like to talk about the squad and the members of the squad shutting things down. And They never shut things down for Nancy Pelosi, but Kevin McCarthy does not have a grip on his caucus like Nancy Pelosi had on hers. And the extreme side of the Republican caucus 
I really believe, is satisfied with just shutting everything down. That's why it's false equivalency. I totally agree. It, you know, people saying that the far left and the far right are the same in that respect, they aren't because the far right, I believe, and we'll see, I mean, it's what they've shown so far, to your point, they're satisfied. If government isn't working, that's kind of the point. That's a feature. Exactly. That's not a bug. That's exactly right. The, the far left at least has policy aims, policy goals that they're, they're going for. And while it, nobody likes to compromise when they don't have to, when push comes to shove, they compromise. And when Nancy Pelosi needed to get the votes for a variety of pieces of legislation, she was always able to get those votes. Kevin McCarthy can't get the vote for a simple rule, which was going to you know, bring to the floor a bill that this entire caucus agreed with. It's just an entirely different thing. These guys on the far right are just staging a rebellion to show that they have power. They're upset because they lost the debt ceiling vote. It was a bipartisan vote. It was a vote that had to pass or the United States would face default. And now they're they're getting their payback on McCarthy by making him look silly and by putting him out of control. And while people said that the House would be back in business within a day or two, right now it's literally paralyzed. And there doesn't seem to be any breakthrough as of this recording. So they've gone away for the weekend. What happens next week? I think they'll go right back again. McCarthy will try to pass a rule and they'll try to bring legislation to the floor. And we'll see if he's given away more of the store to the far right in order to get them to be on board. Every time they do this, they're extracting more and more from McCarthy that makes him a weaker speaker. So like we said last week, Kevin McCarthy became weaker because he was forced to cut a deal with Democrats. He's going to become weaker again because he's forced to cut a deal with the far right in his party. So he is a weak speaker, an extremely weak speaker, as I wrote this week. We're just seeing this play out in real time. So we got past the debt limit. The next scary deadline, I believe, and, and maybe you know exactly when it is. I'm forgetting when it is. Potential for a government shutdown next year, isn't it? Next spring? I can't remember the exact date. Yeah, but we'll, we'll have some more uh, show, showdowns. Absolutely. We'll have we'll have some more episodes of Trial Balloon. We'll have some more things to talk about. There's more content coming. Do you know what else? There's always something to talk about. You're referring to Donald Trump's legal challenges. <laughs> it's it's Donald Trump's legal challenges. I don't know how in the how world. Did, how did I get that? How did I, I don't how know. Did I figure I don't, that out. It might be because you posted on Political Wire on Wednesday that Trump's lawyers are told he's a target. Federal prosecutors formally informed Donald Trump's lawyers last week that the former U.S. president is a target of the criminal investigation examining his retention of national security materials at his Mar-a-Lago resort and obstruction of justice, The Guardian reports. In addition, The Independent reports that the DOJ is preparing to ask a Washington, D.C. grand jury to indict former President Trump for violating the Espionage Act and for obstruction of justice as soon as Thursday. Well, we're recording this on Thursday, so as of this recording, it has not come down, but there's still a few hours left in the day. Why should this be the only time we've recorded and uh, news hasn't broken after the recording, making some of the topics that we discussed a little bit old, but we'll see. Maybe it won't happen between this recording and the actual publishing. The Independent continued the use of Section 793, which does not make reference to classified information, is understood to be a strategic decision by prosecutors that has been made to short circuit Mr. Trump's ability to claim that he used his authority as president to declassify documents he removed from the White House and kept at his Palm Beach, Florida property 
long after his term expired in 2021. Is indictment on the way? It sure seems like it. Everyone who knows uh, about how this process works seems to think that special counsel Jack Smith has zeroed in on Trump and that this is the case that seems to be easiest to prove in a courtroom. So they're moving forward on this. I mean, we have all sorts of things that we don't know. However, we learned this week that there's another grand jury in Florida that is hearing evidence in this case. So they've got one in D.C. that has heard from witnesses. They've got one in Florida that has heard from witnesses. We know that there have been many close aides to Donald Trump who have been subpoenaed uh, and have provided testimony. We learned that over 20 Secret Service agents provided testimony. And we have news that's just breaking right before we sit down to record from the independent journalist Murray Wass that Mark Meadows reportedly removed more than a thousand pages of classified documents from the White House on the final day of Trump's presidency. That supposedly comes from Cassidy Hutchinson, who was an aide to Mark Meadows and was in the middle of that. We know her from the January 6th committee testimony that she gave last summer. And obviously that's interesting because we learned as well this week that Mark Meadows has been testifying to the grand jury. Mark Meadows seems to be a linchpin in this case simply because he was in the middle of all of this, as well as the January 6th insurrection case as well. So we're not exactly sure what he testified on, but the fact that he's testifying is a pretty big deal, I think, Chris. And didn't you send me something? Didn't you text me uh, something that Trump has now turned on him? Well, there's been some reporting from Maggie Haberman at the New York Times that uh, Trump and Meadows don't really talk that much anymore, that they're not close and that their camps are not very close as well, which is surprising to me when I read that, because one would think that uh, Meadows, he seems to be the ultimate and loyal aide sticking by Trump through thick and thin. Apparently not. And certainly if this report that's just breaking is true, that it, that he was implicated in taking classified documents from the White House himself, that's quite a bit of leverage that Jack Smith has to use him as a witness against Donald Trump. So anyway, it's speculation at this point. There's a lot we don't know. But it sure seems reading the tea leaves that, you know, you don't send a target letter to someone like Donald Trump unless an indictment is near. So turning to the political aspect of this, does any of it matter if he gets indicted politically running for president? Does it matter? It's an interesting question. I mean, everything that we've seen, the deeper his legal problems, the more firm his support gets in the Republican Party. The problem for Trump is it's still only about 50 to 60 percent of the Republicans who are backing him. But I think it helps explain why there are so many Republicans who are actually throwing their hats in the ring to run for the Republican nomination because they don't know what's going to happen to Trump and they don't know when it's going to happen. So you have someone like Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who's in this race. He's not saying anything negative about Trump. But the key thing here is that he's backed by Oracle CEO Larry Ellison. And Larry Ellison has funded a super PAC that is supporting Tim Scott. And what that means is that Tim Scott, not only does he have the $20 million that he's already raised for this run, but he's got somebody with very deep pockets who could potentially let Tim Scott stay in this race all the way through the primaries in the spring, just in case something happens to Donald Trump. The same might be true for Doug Burgum, the North Dakota governor, who nobody knows, but he threw his hat in the ring as well. The thing that Burgum has is he has deep pockets as well. The other guy who threw his hat in the ring this week was Chris Christie, who seems to have much shorter sights on his hands. He's looking to try to take Trump out in a primary debate, you know, perhaps one in New Hampshire, 
perhaps one in the New Hampshire primary or something like that. So I don't know if Chris Christie is sticking out for the long haul. But these other guys, I really do. I think that's why they're running. I think the field is big because I think there's a big question mark over whether Trump will still be in this race come next summer. It's kind of like the scene from animals on the on the hunt, the smaller animals all sitting on the outside waiting for the bigger one to make the kill. And maybe that bigger one goes away for whatever reason. And there's some scraps left over for them. You mentioned a bunch of people who'd gotten in the race, but you didn't mention yet another former loyal aide, Mike Pence. I don't know if that's because you might have fallen asleep during his CNN town hall, but to the extent that you woke back up and were able to watch some of that, what's your take on Pence? Well, I think, I mean, not only do you fall asleep listening to him, but trying to understand his logic. Oh my gosh. This is pretzel logic that makes no sense. He says on the one hand, Chris, we need to respect the rule of law. We need to respect the constitution. And no one's above the law. No one is above the law, Chris, except perhaps, well, the Justice Department should rethink indicting Donald Trump because that wouldn't be right, even if he broke the law. And by the way, Chris, if Donald Trump wins the nomination, Pence is all in. He's backing whoever wins. I can only support only someone who has not put him or herself above the Constitution should be able to be president. But I will support the Republican nominee, even if it's uh, Donald Trump. I will support the nominee. I just don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. Yes, it, come on. The logic was pretzeled, but in a way it wasn't pretzeled. I actually thought it was a pretty straight line. He's just saying whatever. It's an impossible task. He has the same problem that Chris Christie has really, although Chris Christie is a bit more of a pit bull. How do you say on the one hand that I was loyal to this guy for all these years, but now he should be replaced because he actually wasn't as good as I thought he was just a few years ago. So that type of candidate really, I don't think is going to go very far in this race. And it's, it's why I didn't really mention them as the ones, you know, looking at the long play here. You know, someone like Tim Scott is looking at Donald Trump potentially imploding sometime in next summer, getting indicted, maybe getting convicted. And all of a sudden the Republican Party finds themselves without a strong candidate. DeSantis is already proving himself not to be the strongest candidates, but we'll see what happens to him. But I think some of these other guys are in it for the long haul. Yeah, isn't that interesting? We just uh, talked for a couple of minutes about Republican potential nominees, and DeSantis didn't come up until the very end. He has proven himself to just be a not a ready, not ready for primetime candidate. I mean, he seems to be all over the place. And and actually, when you look at the Republican race, you look at, you know, if you go back to 2016, it seemed like Donald Trump was always, you know, kind of up there at the top of the race. And you had these other potential challengers, you know, depending upon the polls, come onto the scene. And for a week to 10 days, you know, Ben Carson was rivaling Trump. The same type of thing is happening. I, I think that all of these guys are really running against DeSantis at this point. Trump has got 50% of the vote locked it appears by these polls. You know, we'll see how his legal troubles impact that, but he's got about 50% of the vote locked. And so they're all kind of taking aim at DeSantis. We saw Nikki Haley do that this week, taking aim at DeSantis. They all want to be the credible challenger to Trump somehow. And that may be the real race to focus on here. What's California Governor Gavin Newsom doing? Well, speaking of a long game, Chris, I actually think Gavin Newsom is doing the same thing on the Democratic side that a lot of these other candidates are. I think he is positioning himself, as you saw this week, that he is proposing a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to put gun restrictions on. It's something that's very popular among the Democratic base. And I think he he knows he can't challenge Joe Biden, but 
who knows what happens to Joe Biden between now and, you know, sometime late next summer or early fall. If something happens to Joe Biden health-wise, Democrats are going to look to somebody else. Vice President Kamala Harris is there, but Gavin Newsom probably wants to be in that conversation. And we also saw Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer this week launch a National Political Action Committee, which I thought was pretty interesting. Gretchen Whitmer also wants to raise her national profile, and she's probably doing it for the exact same reason. I think that those are candidates who are out there just in case something happens. And just one of the reasons why I love politics, as you know, Chris, is it's so unpredictable. Anything can happen, it seems sometimes. And this presidential race may see a few twists before the end. Any possibility that Newsom brings kidnapping charges against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? Whether it's against the governor himself or whether it's against other people in the DeSantis administration, it sure seems likely. I mean, we've got a sheriff in Texas who's considering charges against uh, Florida officials right now for putting migrants on a bus and bringing them to various places. Well, I guess it was on a plane up to uh, Martha's Vineyard in the Texas case. And now in this case, in the California case, it's literally from Florida to Sacramento. And the reason it's kidnapping, uh, from what I understand from the case, is that these migrants were told that they were being put on planes and they were being given jobs and housing and other things. And it turns out that they were just left in Sacramento in front of the uh, state house. You're exactly right. The Florida officials are saying that, no, 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 there's nothing to see here. Quoting their spokesperson, the emergency management spokesperson, Florida's voluntary relocation is precisely that, voluntary. Through verbal and written consent, these volunteers indicated they wanted to go to California. I love that, verbal consent. (laughs) I'm sure sure that, I mean, maybe written consent, they they have something. The statement included a link to a video of Spanish speakers apparently traveling voluntarily, with one man saying he had arrived in California and others saying they were treated well on the journey. The exact circumstances in the video could not immediately be verified by Reuters. Meanwhile, to that, Gavin Newsom said in Politico, he visited with migrants in Sacramento and said it appeared at least some of them were flown to his state under false pretenses. So he's at the least keeping open the possibility. Yeah, I just don't know how, how it's smart politics on DeSantis's part. I mean, maybe it scores him a few extra points here or there in a Republican primary, but I got to say, it's really going to hurt him in a general election if he's playing these people like pawns like this. It just does not seem to be the way Americans would want to treat people who want to come to this country. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe his political instincts are better, but I sure hope not. And quickly, I wanted to touch on news that broke earlier today, a few hours before we recorded this. The Supreme Court, New York Times writes, in a surprise decision, ruled that Alabama had diluted the power of black voters by drawing a congressional voting map with a single district in which they made up the majority. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion in the five to four ruling, which required the state legislature to draw a second district in which black voters have the opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. He was joined by Justice Kavanaugh and the court's three liberal members, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Katani Brown-Jackson. Voting rights advocates had feared that the decision would further undermine the Voting Rights Act of 65, a landmark legislative achievement of the civil rights movement whose reach the court's conservative majority has eroded in recent years. Instead, the law appeared to emerge unscathed from its latest encounter with the court. That was a really, really, really surprising outcome. And already, Political Wire posted that Cook Political Report 
has started to shift house seat ratings for 2024. Well, you know, Chris, if the maps are going to be redrawn in Alabama, the Cook Political Report, Dave Wasserman over there, uh, who does excellent work, says that, you know, it's probably going to cause map redraws in North Carolina, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina. And they immediately, without knowing what these new maps would be, they see five Republican lawmakers who were pretty much in solid districts, that those districts now are a toss up until we know what these exact lines are of the districts. The idea that they've already moved five seats, if you remember our earlier conversation, Kevin McCarthy only has a five-seat majority. So that's ballgame, folks. Yes. Interesting. I I was going to say rare. I guess it's not necessarily rare. But this was a decision today, and the most recent one that I think was even more, well, I think even more powerful in terms of having an immediate electoral effect was the abortion decision and uh, the overruling of Roe v. Wade and how that immediately has changed so much of the landscape. But this one, in a, I guess in a more targeted way, because it would have to depend on particular districts. I mean, talk about a decision that is immediately going to affect the 2024 races, it changes things right from the get-go. Oh, it really does. And when you think about the fact that New York Democrats are trying to get a redo of the drawing of the maps in New York because of that fiasco up in New York, and people suggest that they might be able to pick up two, three, four seats there as well if they draw somewhat normal maps instead of the crazy ones they drew last time. This could immediately shift the House towards the Democrats and Kevin McCarthy may not have to worry much longer about fending off his right wing because he may be out of a job entirely come January 2025. Well, as places like New York look to redraw their legislative maps, I need to rewrite the note that ChatGPT just did for me. That's the thank you note to you for my pending birthday present at the end of this year of an Apple Vision Pro. So I'm going to go rewrite that right now. Yeah, Chris, why don't you uh, wait outside for that? I'll, I'll drop it by. And uh, if I'm late, just keep waiting, Chris. I'll keep waiting. Like I usually do for you. <laughs> you, you, just, you just keep me waiting. Bye, Tegan. Take care, Chris.